Amen. Be seated. Hey Amen. Well, it's wonderful to see you all this morning. I, I love that song. It's one of my favorite songs. What a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. And that's the name we're here to exalt and uh, to lift up here this morning. Uh, welcome to uh, Faith Bible Church on this Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we had quite a night last night. I was uh, there in bed uh, trying to go to sleep and had the, the weather on there a bit, little bit. And all of a sudden, Cheryl's phone and my phone start going off. We live over in the Oakdale area and there was a the tornado, supposedly the path that was there to River Oaks. So a lot of, there was a lot of people in the church. I appreciate that. And tell them, hey, you better get in your cellar. I didn't want to go. Cheryl loves that thing going down in that Frady hole. <laughs> She's uh, so glad we have it. So anyway, she got me to go down there with her. So I went down there and I, I thought, well, you know, just in case one's coming, I grabbed a box, you know, kind of all of our records and all that stuff, grabbed a couple checkbooks and threw in there. And by the way, I also, uh, I threw my sermon notes in there. I thought if the house gets destroyed, I want to at least be able to preach tomorrow. So I grabbed my Bible and sermon notes. We went down there and uh, stayed down there for a little bit and everything was okay. But we do need to pray though for people in our, our state who are enduring a lot of flooding. I know at least a couple lives were lost last night. We need to pray for the families of those, those folks. Let's do that this morning as we begin. Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize your power and your might and your majesty. And we can see just a little bit of that in those storms that we had last night, Lord, just your, your strength and your power. And uh, Father, it also reminds us how fragile this life is. Uh, we, we know that uh, there was loss of life last night. Father, we're so sorry for that. We pray for these families who've lost loved ones. They've been awakened today to, to a whole new day, a whole new reality without someone they love. We pray for those who've been injured, that you'll heal them. We pray for all the property damage, Lord, a lot of flooding around the state. We pray that you'd give us relief from that. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you on this Memorial Day that as we celebrate those who gave that last uh, full measure of devotion, uh, that Jesus Christ came and gave himself for us. We pray he'll be lifted up this morning. We pray that the words we'll hear this morning will be the words of God, will be challenged and ministered to and built up. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in our study this morning in 1 Peter. If you want to turn there with me to 1 Peter 3.13, that'll be the beginning of our text this morning. We're starting the last main section of the book now. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. There's a story, I think I told it here a few years ago, but I like this story about a monastery in Germany where they trained men for various responsibilities in the church. And the one man was there in training, and he lived in mortal fear of being called upon to preach the sermon in the daily chapel uh, services they had. And uh, finally, it was his turn, and he said he would do anything to get out of it. He would do the most menial labor. I mean, he just lived in mortal fear of this. But the uh, superintendent would hear nothing of it. He says, you're going to bring the message in chapel uh, tomorrow. You're going to preach the sermon. So the young man got up there, and uh, he gets up to begin his message, and he starts his sermon by asking this, brothers, do you know what I'm going to say? They all shook their heads in the negative. He said, well, neither do I. Let's stand for the benediction. Uh, Pax Vaboscum, which means peace be with you. Well, the monitor, the superintendent was infuriated with him, and he said, I'm going to give you a second chance tomorrow, and you better preach a message. 
So the next day, the scene was the same. The young man was as terrified as the day before. He got up and said, brothers, do you know what I'm going to say? This time, they all nodded their heads in the affirmative. And he said, since you already know, there's no point in my saying it. Let's stand for the benediction, uh, Pax Vaboscum. Well, the superintendent was livid at this point and said, if you don't preach a message tomorrow, I'm going to put you in confinement, solitary confinement, and put you on bread and water. So the third day, the scene was the same. He got up and began as he had the two previous days. He said, brothers, do you know what I'm going to say? Some of them nodded their heads in the affirmative and some in the negative. Then he concluded with this, let those who know tell those who don't know. Let's stand for the benediction. (laughs) Pax Vaboscum. Well, I like that story, especially the end of it, because the message of this story is clear that those who know are to tell those uh, who don't know. And that's really the calling that God has placed upon you and upon me, that those of us who don't know are to tell those uh, who know. But if we're honest about it, if all of us here are very honest, we will all say that we struggle with this in our lives. All of us struggle with sharing our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ with people around us. We we find it often difficult uh, to do that. I was uh, doing some reading in preparation, obviously, for this message, and I ran across a a statement uh, from some Barna Group research, and they said that 47% of practicing Christian millennials believe it's wrong to evangelize or share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will convert. So about half of professing Christian millennials think it's wrong to actually share your faith to try to convert somebody from their religion to Christianity. Now, that's deeply troubling. It should be to all of us because we believe that uh, the the gospel that we trust in is an exclusive gospel. I mean, Jesus said, you know, narrow is the gate, narrow is the path that leads to life. Few there will be that find it. Broad is the gate, broad is the path that leads to destruction. Many there will be who find it. Uh, There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Jesus is the way to God. So, but, it, but as troubling as that, those statistics are from millennials, uh, many of us who believe that we should share and evangelize with people who don't know Christ, don't do it, right? So the result is the same, whether you believe you shouldn't do it or you just don't do it, the result ends up being the same. But you and I are called to be witnesses for Christ. You and I who know are to tell those who don't know. And that's what our text this morning really is about. It's about being a witness for Christ and the gospel in the midst of a hostile, hardened culture. So the central thought I want to develop this morning is this. This is the thought I want you to leave with, that you and I witness for Christ in a hostile world by our words and by our works as we are empowered by the Lordship of Christ. So you and I are to witness for Christ in a hostile world. We do it by our words and by our works. And we do it as we are empowered by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, let me read these verses for us. And I think you'll see this thought fleshed out. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? For even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So reads uh, God's inspired word. 
I've got three simple points this morning you can see in your outline there to guide us through this passage. Uh, They all surround this idea of us being a witness for Christ. I want to look at the place of our witness. Where do we witness? Then I will look at the practice of our witness. How do we do it? And then the power of our witness. What is it that energizes us and motivates us to do this? So let's start with the place of our witness. Now, when we come to 1 Peter 3.13, we've come to the final main section of 1 Peter. Um, In this uh, verse, uh, the focus of 1 Peter shifts to suffering. Now, remember the overall purpose of 1 Peter. At the end of the book, in 1 Peter 5.12, he says, Brethren, um, I've been testifying and exhorting you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So this letter is the grace of God. It's, it's the, the, the life we're to live as Christians. And he's saying, stand firm in this in the midst of a hostile culture. And so the first part of the book, the first section is God's grace and salvation. He starts off by talking about our salvation, grounding us and rooting us firmly in the salvation we have through Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 2, verse 11 and following, it's God's grace and submission. Four times the word submission is used, and it tells us how to submit in the various arenas of life. But when we come to chapter 3, verse 13 now, the shift is to God's grace and suffering. Um, the, the word suffering, different forms of the Greek words are used 12 times in 1 Peter, but in, verses, uh, in chapter 3, verse 13 and following, eight times you'll find various Greek words for suffering. So up to this point in 1 Peter, the idea of suffering for your your faith as a Christian has kind of hovered in the background, but now it's brought out into the open. It's it's brought into center stage. You'll see that in verse 13, the word harm. Then in verse 14, the word suffer. Down in verse 16, the word slandered and then reviled. And then in verse 17, the word suffer. And so that we're moving now into the section of the book where he's going to deal directly with the idea that these believers are being mocked and maligned and insulted and reviled for their faith. And we've said many times in our study of 1 Peter that they're not being persecuted in the sense of being martyred or beaten physically, but it's what we call soft or low-grade persecution, kind of like what we see in our culture today. So the context of these verses is suffering for doing what's right. In other words, unjust suffering as a believer in Jesus. And so verse 13 here sets the stage for this passage, and it gives the general rule in life that if you live an honest, good life, generally you're not going to suffer harm from other people, right? And if you live a good life, you live an honest life, what happens? Generally people leave you alone. So when he asks this question in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The implied answer is nobody, right? People are going to generally leave you alone. But Peter is being pragmatic here. And he's just stating the general rule, if you live a clean, honest life, you won't suffer for it. When we do good, we reduce the probability of being mistreated. But then notice verse 14. He says, but, notice the contrast, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, Now, in Greek, this is a really rare form of a conditional clause, and it it carries the idea that it's something that's unlikely but possible. 
So the people he's writing to, he's saying, look, this may be unlikely that it's going to happen to you, that you're going to be mistreated for being a believer, but it's possible. And it may carry the idea as well that he's telling him it's not going to be continuous, but it's going to be intermittent and sporadic. It can erupt at any time. And I think we would all agree in our culture today, there's a greater chance of suffering as a Christian than at any time in the history of our country. There's an escalating hostility and hardening toward Christ and towards the Bible and towards uh, Christians. And so even though we do good and practice righteousness, the possibility remains in our culture today that we're going to be reviled and slandered and mocked and insulted for what we believe. Because always, eventually, the light, when it shines into the darkness, is going to cause those in the darkness to respond to it. The darkness hates the light, and the world hates having the light shine into its darkness, and eventually it will respond. So if you live a godly Christian life and you make it clear you're a believer, it's very likely in our culture at some point you're going to find yourself unpopular, mistreated, shunned, put down, and probably ridiculed. And it can happen um, in the workplace. It can happen at school. It certainly can even happen within our families. So he's saying you're being mocked and mistreated is the exception if you do good, but it can and does happen. And remember uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not all the time, but it will happen sometime. And he says when this happens, you are blessed. And what that means is highly privileged. It's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when men uh, mistreat you and speak all manner of evil against you on account of me, for so they treated the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're highly privileged. This isn't punishment. It's a blessing. Their mistreatment c- confirms you belong to the Lord, that you're on the right path, and it puts you in some pretty good company with the prophets and Jesus and the apostles. And then he says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. One of the things I see in our culture today that's increasing is there's an intimidation out there to just try to get people who are believers to be quiet about what we think and what we believe, about social issues, about all kinds of things. And he, he quotes here, Peter does, from the book of Isaiah. This is an allusion back to Isaiah 8:12, And the situation there was, King Ahaz was facing a crisis. He's the king of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel and the, the uh, kingdom of Syria or Aram are threatening to invade. And he's terrified by this. And the prophet Isaiah comes with a message to Ahaz that the Lord would preserve Judah. And so he quotes this here, Peter does, because just as Judah had enemies back in the days of King Ahaz and had opponents who would come against them, we have enemies and opponents of our faith today who want to intimidate us. But he's saying, we're not to fear the suffering they may bring upon us. We're to trust in the Lord, uh, just as Isaiah encouraged the people to do uh, back in his day. So all of this is to say the place where you and I witness today, the place where we find ourselves is a hostile world. We find ourselves in a world that does not love us. And if you get up every day as a believer thinking the world is going to love you and what you believe, Um, That's an illusion. Jesus said, the world hated me, and it's going to hate you. And again, we don't try to go and bring that on ourselves. It's just a reality. 
Now, if we respond well to this, though, sometimes that gives us an opportunity to witness for Christ, to tell those who don't know. And that brings us to verse 15, to what I call the practice of our witness. Now, we're going to skip the very first part of of verse 15, and we'll come back to that later. But the witness that you and I give in the midst of of a hardened, hostile culture begins with our lips. Notice he says, being ready to make a defense. When you and I face mistreatment and insults in our culture, our hope will shine through to unbelievers that at times will make them sit up and take notice. They're going to see that we have a hope within us that will cause them to sit up and take notice and be curious and want to know the reason for our hope. So we said we're to always be ready. In other words, you and I are to stand ready to give a defense of the hope that's within us. Now, many of you know the word defense here. To make a defense is the the Greek word apologion. We get our word apology from that. Now, it doesn't mean you're going around telling everybody you're sorry, you know, for what you believe, apologizing. What the word means is it means a defense or an answer was often used in that day of a formal trial or a defense when someone was was placed on trial. But most often, it it just refers to everyday informal inquiries and and conversations where someone is giving a a defense or a, a reason to answer for something. Now, we obviously get our word apologetics from this word. Many of you uh, know about uh, the study of apologetics, and basically apologetics is a defense of the truth claims of Christianity. It's being able to defend the truth claims uh, that we believe. It's uh, explaining the reason uh, why we believe what we believe. And this verse is often called uh, the apologetics mandate. Now, one thing I want you to notice, though, I, I think it's fine to take Second, uh, or First uh, Peter 3.15 and use that as a mandate for us to engage in apologetics. But that's a good application. But remember, this passage is in the context of someone who's being mistreated for their faith in Christ. They're being mistreated. They're being reviled. They're being insulted. And through that, the hope they have in Jesus Christ shines through to such an extent that someone who's watching that person asks, what is the reason for the hope that's within you? So let's not forget the context here is a context of suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what this means for you and me is that you and I must know the gospel and why we believe it if we're going to give a good account of the faith. It's like a man asked a Christian one time, he says, well, what do you believe? He said, well, I believe the same thing my church believes. He says, well, what does your church believe? And he says, well, my church believes the same thing I believe. He says, well, what do you both believe? And he said, well, we both believe the same thing. And I think sadly, that's kind of the way a lot of Christians are today. I believe what my church believes. They believe what I believe. And they're never really able to carefully articulate why they believe what they believe. And it says here you're to make a defense, a a, a reasoned explanation of the truth claims of Christianity to everyone who asks you. So again, this passage primarily refers to times when we're suffering for our faith and someone asks us why we have hope in the midst of that. And it gives an open door for the gospel. And he says, give uh, to everyone who asks you an account 
for the hope that's within you. That word in the Greek means something that's reasonable or rational or thoughtful. And I love that because our faith is rational and reasonable. Now, it still takes faith to believe it, but it's a reasonable, rational, thoughtful faith. And then I love this, for the hope that is within you. People are going to look and they're going to see that you have hope, a hope they don't have, and they're going to want it. When we introduced 1 Peter, we said that this is the epistle of hope in the New Testament. It's mentioned over and over again. It starts in 1 Peter 1.3, that we've been born again uh, to a living hope. Now, one of the things this assumes, it assumes that people will be able to see our hope. They won't ask about the reason for your hope if it doesn't look like you have hope or if it looks like your hope is in the th same thing that their hope's in. They're only going to ask you for the reason for the hope that's within you if it looks like you have hope and if your hope is in something their hope's not in because they know they don't have any. And look, people today are dying for a lack of hope. We live in days of despair. People are looking for hope. And when you and I, when they see us, maybe in, in, in all kinds of settings, but especially maybe mocked and insulted for our faith, and they see the hope that we have, God can give an open door for us to share with them. I read a, a quote by John Piper uh, this week that, that really has ministered to me. I want to share it with you. He says, it's become clearer to me than ever before that the reason we aren't more free and natural in testifying to our neighbors and associates about the reality of our hope in Christ is that we don't feel very hopeful. And if your hearts are not full of hope and the promises of Christ, then, there is, then here is what happens when an occasion arrives to make a case for your hope. We sense that it's a duty to defend doctrine instead of a delight to tell somebody why we're hopeful. Now, let me just pause there for a moment and say this. A lot of us as Christians, we feel like, well, I've got this duty. I mean, I've got to defend what I believe, and I've got to defend my doctrine. Look, that's fine to do that, but I love what he says. It's a delight to tell somebody why I'm hopeful. One of the problems today in our culture with Generation X and Millennials and whatever all, all the generations are behind me, I've kind of gotten confused what they all are. But a lot of problem with that is, and what I've been reading is, they see that Christianity and different religions, that we're just kind of pushing our brand. We got a brand and the other religion have another brand and we're just kind of trying to, to, to defend our brand or our creed, push that off on people. I like what he says here. It's not just a duty to defend doctrine, although that's part of it, but it's a delight to tell somebody why I'm hopeful. And he says, I saw like I never had seen before that witnessing will always be a burdensome duty to defend a doctrine as long as Christianity means for us simply accepting certain doctrines is true and keeping a list of certain do's and don'ts. So many people in the church have simply inherited the motions of church life and outward morality and piety, but the heartfelt reality of Christ and joyful hope in His promises are foreign to their experience. And then he closes with this. Such people can always make a case for a doctrine, but they cannot make a case for the hope within them because they don't feel any hope brimming up within their hearts. That's powerful. Look, it's not just some duty I have to defend the faith. It is a delight to tell people why I have hope and why Jesus is more precious to me than anything in this world. The way to get ready to make a case for your hope is to be hopeful. 
We prepare to be a witness by keeping our hearts happy and hopeful in the Lord. And so when someone asks us the reason for the hope that's within us, you don't have to answer every question. No one can do that. Greatest Bible and the scholar in the world can't answer all of people's questions. There are a lot of things we don't know. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a a great, well-trained apologist. But you need to have a reasonable, intelligent account of what you've believed and what you've experienced. Maybe some of you need to read a theology book. I'll recommend one this morning. Charles Ryrie, Basic Theology. It's a great book. It's a simple book for a theology book to read. Get a, a copy of Basic Theology and read that. You need to get a firm handle on what you believe. Um, sign up for 2-7 here in this church. There have been a lot of people's lives in our church been transformed radically through uh, that discipleship program known as 2-7. You can call the church and find out about it. It's a powerful discipleship program. There's all kinds of things out there to help us to understand how to do this. Now, here's what I often do when I talk to people. And again, it depends on how much time you have. But I always start off with people that there is a God. You have to believe there's a God. The Bible says that even people that claim to be atheists, they know there's a God, but they've pushed down and suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They know there's a God. The Bible tells us they do. They've just pushed it down. Because the Bible begins with a presupposition that God exists. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no big defense of that, no explanation. It's simply a presupposition. There is a God, in fact, a triune God who exists. So that's where I begin with people. And then I I go to the next stage and I talk about the Bible. God wants to communicate with his creatures. And every religion has a book. Hindus have a book. Muslims have a book. Christians have a book. Jews have a book. The Mormons have a book. And so we look at all these books and we say, which book has the fingerprints of God upon it? And we see that the Bible is the only one of these books that predicts the future with 100% accuracy. There are 500 prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled. And God says back in the book of Isaiah, if someone wants to prove they're a God, tell the future before it takes place. Look into the future and tell me what's going to happen. So the Bible has the fingerprints of God upon it. I had a guy come up after the early service and say, I talk to people all the time. They'll say, well, I don't believe the Bible. And I always tell them, I said, tell them they have to believe the Bible because the Bible predicts the future 500 times. And and there's 500 prophecies yet to be fulfilled. So it has an, an astounding track record. The fingerprints of God are all over this book and the, the prophecies it's given. And then I move from there to the truth of Jesus and the gospel. Look, there's a God, he's spoken to us, and the message he's given to us is the problem is we're alienated from God. We're separated from God. That, that's why our lives are the way they are. But God has a remedy for that need. God, the Son, God in human flesh, stepped out of eternity into time and took our sin and rose from the dead. You can give people evidences for the idea of the resurrection depending on how much time you have. But my point is we need to to know how and be quick to explain why Christ is more precious to us than anything else, why He is our hope and He's our delight. Again, it's not just telling somebody about, here's a little addition to my life, or here's a part of my life. No, Jesus is my life, and he is my hope. And then he closes in verse 15 by saying, do this with gentleness and reverence. In other words, we're not to be arrogant or to be prideful. We're to be humble and calm. 
We're not to be a know-it-all or be belligerent as we tell people. We're to be reverent, not flippant, because uh, we're, we're discussing the greatest reality in all the world. And the purpose is not to win an argument, it's to win a soul uh, to Jesus Christ, who is our, our only hope. I've uh, been doing a lot of reading here recently just about evangelism and the gospel and, and, again, the culture that we live in. And there's a book by Tim Chester called Everyday Church uh, that I've read. And he says this, many current evangelistic approaches assume a Christian culture. But as we have seen, we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture. People are biblically illiterate. They don't start with the basics of a Christian worldview. Guilt, faith, sin, and God are empty or confused concepts to them. He says, if we could place people on a range of one to 10, depending on their interest in the gospel, where one is no interest and 10 is a decision to follow Christ, lots of evangelism assumes people are around an eight. But he says 70% of the population is a one or a two. It's much different than it was years ago where there was a, a Christian worldview in our culture. And then he says this, many people today, they don't feel a big sense of guilt. They've grown up in an irreligious culture. The guilt of falling short of God's law is not a feature of their thinking. There may be moments when they feel the need of forgiveness, but generally they don't have a strong sense of being sinners. They do, however, feel trapped. They feel unable to be the people they want to be. And the Bible has a compelling, persuasive explanation for this and the good news of a way out. Now, I'm not saying that we change the message of the gospel, but you and I need to look for ways that the gospel message intersects with people's lives. That's what Jesus did. I mean, in, in John 3, he told Nicodemus, the, the religious leader, the Pharisee, you have to be born again. Then we get to John 4, the next chapter, and there's a woman, a sinful woman. She's out drawing water from a well. And Jesus comes up to her and he says, I have water that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. And he knew this woman was thirsty in her soul. And he offered to her the water of life. Jesus was looking for creative ways to intersect with people's lives to bring the message of who he is. And we need to do that as well. Uh, Karen Jobes says this, this verse, talking about chapter 3, verse 15, raises the question of how many Christians today could make an articulate statement of the reason for their faith in Christ in terms that would be understood by modern society. Most testimonies are given in Christian gatherings using jargon of the church and make perfect sense to the converted, but in terms that have little meaning for those who are not already believers. While such a practice is an important part of a Christian's development, believers must be able to relate the Christian faith to unbelievers by addressing their questions in terms they find meaningful. So you and I need to keep that in mind. It's a, a different culture. It's a different world that we're going into. But the bottom line is you and I need to express to people around us the reason that we have a hope in Jesus Christ. I think I've shared this story with you all before, but uh, several years ago, a chemistry professor at UCO uh, called me. He had a mutual friend, and uh, he wanted to just get together and talk about the Bible and all kinds of things, and he, he knew that I had written some stuff in prophecy, and he was really interested in that. So when he came to my office, we met for three hours, and he told me at the outset that he was an atheist, and um, obviously he's a, a chemistry professor, so he knew a lot more about that kind of stuff than I do, way, way more. 
But it's interesting, we talked about the Bible, uh, we talked about creation, we talked about evolution, uh, we talked about Jesus, we talked about all kinds of things. And uh, into the conversation, he told me, he said, well, you know, I'm not really sure I'm an atheist, I may just be an agnostic. Um, a couple times he got, would get kind of agitated with me about thir- certain things I would say. And finally, after about the third time, he started getting really upset. I said, well, look, you're the guy that called me and wanted to come see me. I'm, I, I, got, I know what I believe about these things. He said, well, yeah, you're right, you're right. So, but, but just to show you what you never know God will use, you know, we talked about all this stuff, you know, really hadn't gotten anywhere. And at the end of the time, a thought came into my mind, and I believe it's God that brought this thought to my mind. And I just asked him, I said, what about the Jewish people? He kind of looked at me and said, what about the Jewish people? I said, well, have you ever thought about why are the Jewish people throughout their history, from Abraham's day till today, why have these people been hunted, hounded, harassed? There's pogroms against them, persecution. We see the anti-Semitism in the world we see today. It's still here. Why this group of people, an age-long hatred of the Jewish people? Now, the reason I brought that up is this guy's main thesis was don't look for a supernatural explanation for something that you can explain naturally. In other words, if there's a natural explanation for something, don't go looking for all these supernatural explanations. I told him, I said, I agree with that. I just believe you can't explain how everything got here naturally. You have to have a supernatural explanation. So when I brought up the case of the Jewish people, I said, what's the natural explanation for the age-long hatred of the Jewish people? He sat there and he said, well, I can't think of one. So we talked a little bit longer and he still couldn't come up with anything. And I said, well, let me give you one. God promised that the Messiah would come through Abraham and he tried to wipe out the Jewish people. Satan was trying to destroy them. And today, God still has promises that are to be fulfilled with the Jews, and Satan's trying to wipe them out so God's purposes will be thwarted. Now, he didn't really like the Satan stuff, bringing it up, but anyway, I told him that anyway, because I believe that's true. Well, I saw him a few months later, actually here at our church at a funeral, and as he was going out the door, I caught him, and I said, hey, have you still been thinking about the Jewish people, about that question? He goes, yeah, I've been thinking about it. So, well, have you got an answer? He said, no, I haven't come up with anything yet. But I just say that because we never know what we can say to someone that will maybe keep them thinking. And again, that just popped into my mind about the Jewish people. I know God put that there. But the bottom line in my conversation with this brilliant man was, the bottom line of our conversation, I believe, is he saw that I had hope and he didn't have any. And he was looking for a reason uh, for hope. And I pray that someday God will save him and he'll find it. But our witness isn't just with our our lips, it's with our lives. Notice verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. What it's saying here is your life can't contradict your lips. You got to keep a good conscience. We have to have an alignment between what we say and how we live. A congruence, not a contradiction. It's the old saying, you gotta, you got to walk the talk, right? People don't want to hear about our hope if we're living an ungodly life and have a, a soiled conscience. Now, it says here, keep a good conscience. Our, our conscience is the internal judge down in us that God has placed there that either approves or accuses us. I mean, it's been described as the early warning system of the soul, Um, H.L. Mencken says that the conscience is the inner voice that warns us that someone may be looking. And every one of us here, you know, even when you're just thinking about doing something wrong, all of a sudden the early warning system of the soul begins to go off that God has placed there. 
It's like a little boy said one time, he says, your conscience is what makes you tell your mom what happened before your sister does. I like that. Someone said the difference between your conscience and conscious is conscious is when you're aware of something, conscience is when you wish you weren't. And in uh, Mark Twain's character, Huck Finn, he said this, I love this, a man's conscience takes up more room than all the rest of his insides. We all know that when our conscience is soiled or our conscience is being plagued, it takes up more room than all the rest of our insides. But what he's saying here is a clear conscience will help you face a hostile world. It'll give you courage because you'll know you're right with God and other people. It'll give you peace. It's very difficult to witness to other people with power about the reason for the hope that's within you if you have a stained, defiled conscience. As Shakespeare said, conscience doth make cowards of us all. If your conscience is a dirty conscience, then you're not going to be as effective as a witness. We want a clear conscience, not a a clouded or or a corrupt conscience. Now you say, well, how do I get a clear conscience? Well, the first thing is obey the Bible. Obey the revelation that God has given us in Scripture. And the second thing is when you sin, confess your sin and go to the Lord and receive His cleansing. And you can have your conscience cleansed. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's an anonymous quote that summarizes the end of verse 16 really well. And the person said this, when men speak evil of you, live so that no one will believe them. That's what it's saying. So that in the thing in which you're slandered, it's assuming that there's people out there in this culture slandering us, that that those who revile you, your good behavior, will be put to shame. So someone is slandering me as a Christian that my good behavior ultimately is going to put that person uh, to shame. There's a, a story I read not long ago. I've quoted this book now to you several times. I thought I'd bring it in here today. It's in his own words. It's about Billy Graham, written by Jerry Jenkins. But, it, but Jerry Jenkins tells a story from Billy Graham's life a, a, about the golf course. And uh, right across the page here, there's a quote from Billy Graham where he says, the only time my prayers are never answered is on the golf course. I like that. But it goes on to tell a story here about one time that President Gerald Ford invited Billy Graham to play golf, and it was Gerald Ford, Billy Graham, Jack Nicklaus, and another uh, golf professional. And this golf professional that played with them was uh, an ungodly man, he was an unbeliever, and he was telling another friend of his that he was not looking forward to this at all because Billy Graham was just holier than thou, and he was going to be cramming the, the gospel down his throat, cramming religion down his throat the whole time. And so he was mocking and slandering uh, Billy Graham. Well, Billy heard about that beforehand, and so he decided and prayed about it that he was just going to play golf and, and enjoy himself with these men and not pray or say anything about the gospel unless uh, the, the situation Uh, offered itself. So after the round was over, this man who'd been berating Billy Graham and saying he was going to cram the gospel down his throat, that this man stormed off the golf course to the practice range. He was swearing about the horrible time he had with the foursome. But someone asked him if things had gone the way he expected and Billy Graham had shoved religion down his throat the whole time. And the guy said, no, I kept waiting for it, but he was perfectly fine. But I shot a horrible round though. So I think he was just mad because he was waiting the whole time for Billy to do it, and he never did. It was just bothering him the whole time. But that's a case of where someone who was slandering a believer 
by the good behavior of that believer, in this case, Billy Graham. This man was put to shame. He was put to shame. Billy wasn't anything uh, like he said he would be. So look, the, the place of our witness is this hostile world we live in. The practice of our witness is an alignment between thoughtful conversation and good conduct. And then we'll close here this morning just uh, briefly with the power of our witness. Verse 15, the beginning of it says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Now, I've got to point out one thing here for you. You can look at this on your own, but this is an allusion back to Isaiah 8.13, where it says, it's the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. But I want you to notice something here. Peter changes the word Yahweh from Isaiah 8.13 to Christ. So he's saying that Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So he just substitutes in here the name Christ for Yahweh, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. And this is a, a clear confirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Peter believed Jesus is God. When he says sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, literally what that means is set him apart or enthrone him or enshrine Christ or exalt Christ as Lord in your heart. In other words, set him above every other allegiance and turn everything over to him. And he says, do it in your heart. In other words, I'm to enthrone Jesus Christ and enshrine him in the inner sanctuary of my heart and make him supreme in my life. And this is the foundational choice in life that affects everything else. It's the ultimate priority and purpose of life. Everything comes back to and revolves around the central issue of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Is He Lord over all of my life? And He's saying here, if you enthrone Christ in your heart, that's going to energize and empower your witness with Christ enthroned and exalted in your heart, you have grace and strength to stand firm in your witness for Jesus Christ. So he is the one who energizes those of us who know to tell those who don't know. He's the one who empowers us in these darkening days and these hardening times to be ready to give a reason for our hope. And Jesus Christ is our only hope. And when he's enthroned in our hearts, that hope will radiate outward uh, to people around us. And so two questions as we close here this morning. One is, Jesus Christ, is he your hope? Is he more precious to you than any person in this world? Is he the one that you're clinging to and you're hoping in for your salvation and him alone? If you're not, that's what you need to do this morning is take your hope, all of it, and place it in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And for those of us who know Christ, I want you to leave here thinking about this this morning. Are you ready to give a witness? Are you ready to give a defense for the reason that the hope, for the hope that's within you? Are people going to look at your life and say, that person has a hope that I don't have? When they ask us, is it going to be the delight of our life to tell them why we have hope and who our hope is in? Are you praying for opportunities and looking for those opportunities to give a, a, a defense of the truth claims of Christianity and what you believe? Are you looking to tell those who don't know? Well, I can tell you this. I'm going to be praying for myself, and I'm going to be praying for everybody in this church in these coming days that God's going to give us those opportunities. So I hope you're ready. 
So I believe God will answer that prayer and he'll give us opportunities. And again, you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be an apologist. But you need to give a thoughtful reason why you have hope in Jesus Christ, why your hope is in him alone. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, our, our prayer is that you'll make each heart here this morning a sanctuary where Jesus Christ is enthroned as Lord. We thank you for the hope that we have in him, a living hope, a hope that will not disappoint, that will never fade away. Father, I pray for myself and for all my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning that you'll give us opportunities in this despairing world in which we live to share the hope that we have with other people. Oh, Father, make it a delight to share with people why we have hope and give us boldness and give us confidence. Help us to be ready. And Father, I pray that our lives will be consistent with what our lips say. We ask these things in Jesus' name.